This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Osiris. Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Loyalty, described as, do you care? And I care, and that's why I'm on this show. Comes a time, here we go. <laughs> I'm a sucker for O'Teal, man. It's all that same feeling that I have, that what he filled a void that I didn't even know existed. It feels so good to, as Ben said, to try to do something about an issue as opposed to complaining. If you can't help, don't hurt. If we could just all get out there and throw cream puffs at each other, maybe things would, instead of bullets and, and <laughs> angry words, it would be better. When you stop laughing, you stop living. There's a worldwide surge in interest in mushrooms. It was deep, man. It's not that TM makes your mind quiet down there. It already is. We're just stuck up here. We've lost access. I'm jumping Jack Flash. Came out by the stones. So I thought, all right, perfect, man. I'm gonna drive, and I started driving through the neighborhood, and I got, I got a text from Mick Jagger. <laughs> People saying that you know what we do is non-essential. Well, playing those few gigs that yeah. you saw me at felt pretty essential to me. It wasn't like they were clapping from here. Is they were clapping from here. My view of things is that death, death is the last and best reward for a life well lived. Like you gotta, it's the strangest of places if you look at it right, you know? If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the comes a time podcast. That's my pal O'Teal. That's Mike and that's the gorilla. Yes. <laughs> this one was, uh, boy, I had a, such a blast listening. I, I'm the first fan of this episode. <laughs> this was great. Christian McBride. Holy cow. Yeah. What an amazing podcast. Boy, it took some turns I didn't expect. Mm. You know, we did talk some music. We talked music. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. But just beautiful. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, 
a jazz bassist. Well, I can't even categorize him solely as that because he's also played with like Queen Latifah and James Brown and Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney. So <laughs> yeah. he doesn't, he defies category, but he also is artistic director for the uh, Newport Jazz Festival. Uh, he's played with every jazz great known to man that didn't die before he was 17. And uh, he's just amazing. Uh, Unbelievable I don't person. I know what to say. Yeah, no, this is, this is, uh, I told, I get to tell him at the end, but Live at Tonic was like such a, it, it was, I'm going to, this is not dating myself, whatever, prior to these dumb things. We, uh, we had CD books in our car, you yeah. know, and, uh, Live at Tonic. CDs? Remember CDs? <laughs> Case Logic book. But that was right at the top, right next to Soul Live, yeah. right next to Galactic, and right now, and it was just like cruising around New York City listening to that it became like a soundtrack of manhattan you know like and uh yeah. it, it, that it is got, a good soundtrack of manhattan it sure is and it's a it's a he's awesome and just as a pert like just really really great to hear you guys yeah. his admiration for you and yours for him and i was really sweet. surprised i was like oh man because i mean the the list of like jazz greats that he's been mentored by and his friends with it's just kind of staggering. In fact, the fans, some of the fans might have heard him. He has a radio program weekly called Jazz Night in America on NPR, where he's interviewed one jazz great after another. Just great conversation. His voice is so like, boy, should he be in radio, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Yeah, he does have a perfect voice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dude, that voice is just like he can. Him and Victor need to have a you. show together on the radio. That would just yeah. be imagine that. Hey, Otila, I hate to tell you that you are great too. So give yourself that, you know, I mean, he, he's, he's, we're honored to know you too for a reason. I appreciate it, but it, it's, go, it was right. such a, a, right. a treat for me because, you know, he lived the, the one life that I'm jealous of <laughs> because he played, I don't play upright. So he played with all the jazz greats, but he also did James Brown. He also did, you know, all these other people that yeah, just yeah. like, and he's such a sweet person to, to be nice, to be successful and to remain nice to me is the pinnacle. Yeah. The yeah. art is great, but if you could do the art and retain your humanity and your niceness, yes, yes that's absolutely. the real art to me. That's like the, the next art above the art we yeah. put, I think they're out of balance and he's a perfect He's a perfect example of that, you know. He really is, and it's just like when he talks about his upbringing and the the that that matters. So think about all of the great nice people that we've had the on mentors. this that have had someone say, "Check this out," or "I got you," or yeah. you know, like 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 come with me, and and that stuff matters so much. And he's. And he goes, and my mom was great. <laughs> you know? And he was like, how did you avoid drugs? He was like, my mom was like, man. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> that stuff definitely. matters, man. It does. But thank really you, for does. Christian. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really awesome. And again, we've said it before. We'll say it again. We have to have him back for, that was like part yeah. one, maybe of three. Worldly. I very seldom use the term world worldly to describe someone and uh he is yeah 
you will learn a lot from this guy. <laughs> yeah. He's got a show on Sirius as well. So uh, check yes. him out. And thank you everyone for listening. We're here on Osiris, home to so many great podcasts. Head to OsirisPod.com to check him out. And uh, if you like what you're hearing, head to Patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod for bonus episodes each week. Um, you're doing good on the road. Everything's going well. Music sounds great. Yeah, we're, we're, it's, I had two days off, so it's starting to get lonely, but thank God for the podcast. But that's the shows right. are going. Yeah, you guys sound fantastic. So that's the best part, you know. And, yeah. uh, I just keep calling you guys when I get lonely. <laughs> oh, call anytime. <laughs> thank you guys for listening and enjoy Christian, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals, uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Oh. 
American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for making time for us, man, because I think you truly are the busiest guy I've ever seen. Well, I mean, you're one of my heroes, man, so... (laughs) <laughs> and, and anytime anytime you ask i'm there bro <laughs> so this is great because no bullshit you know, i mean that one of one of the the coolest things about this interview for me is that <clears throat> i never really worked with my heroes and you like know all of my hero. you probably have all of my heroes phone numbers <laughs> oh man it's crazy to well, hear I, that from I, you. I know I got your office. phone number, so we, we uh, you know, it's all balanced out there. <laughs> well, man, I, I thank you so much because I, I know you were, I see you're going to Europe like in a couple of days, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, at, I'm going up to uh, Montreal on uh, Wednesday, Wednesday and Thursday, and then I leave for Friday. Yeah. You're playing with uh, Steve Wilson. Yeah, your homie. Yeah, uh, we'll be in Europe for uh, like just over two weeks. Nice. You excited to go back? I am, man. Uh, We were in Europe actually in March, so we got the the whistle wet a little bit. And, uh, you know, we'll go back again for a second European run. And uh, it's going to be fun, man. Cool. Why did I think it was shut down? Well, spike or a, something. a few places started to open back up in the beginning of the year. Um, and uh, the places we played in Europe in March, uh, most of them still had uh, mask mandates. So uh, even though we were in Europe, we still had to, uh, you know, you still had to be careful. And who are you heading out there with? Who's the band for this? Uh, my quintet, Inside Straight, with uh, Steve Wilson, Warren Wolf, Peter Martin, and Carl Allen. Carl Allen. Yeah. I know there's so many, like, uh, I want to talk bass with you, but then I also want to talk drums with you, you know? Oh, man, we, we, could, we could talk all that, man. Whatever you want. And I want to listen well, the to first the two thing, of you talk to The first thing I want to ask you is like your origin story. Did did your parents play or were you the first one to play or my dad plays? Yeah, my, my dad he, play? he plays bass. 
Oh, well, there you go. It's just a family tradition. Both my my dad and my great uncle, all all bass players. All bass. Yeah. Amazing. Both upright? Uh, Now, my my dad, when I I was a kid, my dad only played electric, um, but he switched to acoustic probably right around the time I left Philly to move to New York. So now now he's uh, primarily an upright bass player. Um, my great uncle, he always played o- only upright. Wow. So that's how you started on electric because your yeah. dad played electric. Yeah. You might know him. I mean, you may have run into him at some point. Um, his name is Lee Smith. He plays mostly in the Philly area these days. But uh, huh. when I was a kid, he, he was the MD and basis for um, all the great Philly soul groups, the Delphonics. Major Harris, Billy Paul, Blue Magic. Um, oh man! Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> once I so got, I've heard him a ton. Oh yeah, you've heard him a ton. And uh, once I got old enough to really understand and appreciate what he was doing, by that time he was playing with Mongo Santa Maria. He played with Mongo for five years. Nice. Recorded recorded three albums with him. Oh, wow. See, now I got to go back. Oh, I love it. That's what I love about all this. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And, and your uncles. Otil, you were talking a couple weeks ago about how you want to get back heavy into vinyl, right? We got to get that vinyl collection up and running. Look at the back of look at Christian. Yeah, that's why I said it. You got a great look at that. And I bet it goes further. Oh, it, it goes around, you know, all around here. And, and, and on the floor. It's from way back too, isn't it? That's like all your original vinyl. That's not a new uh, collection, huh? Uh, it's 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 sort of a mixed bag. Um, <laughs> so, some of the vinyl I I grew up with is back there, but some of that stuff is just so beat up. I had to rebuy it. <laughs> That's how it's like. My dad's collection was amazing, right? And we ruined it. And I was like, well, at least we were learning the music. That's right. That's right. Because we could, you couldn't play them now, so I have to rebuy everything. Yeah, you know? yeah. Thank, thank goodness, you know, you're able to rebuy a lot of that stuff now. Yeah, and actually be on an album because I missed albums. Like when al- when I started making records, there right. were no albums. There are no albums, so right? I, I have right. so few of like actual vinyl of me, you know. You can hear how you sound on, you know, in, uh, uh, with the with the actual the the real frequency, the yeah. analog frequency. Yeah, for sure. I, I had a chance to check out uh, Third Man Records in Nashville, Jack White's place, mm-hmm. and he has he has all these old presses, all these old record presses that I mean, he sent people all over the world to find all these old like real classic giant pieces and they would they do live the vinyl there and they just press these pucks down and it's just so amazing to watch the whole process happen right and they have a photo booth that you could go in with a guitar pay five bucks and record yourself to a vinyl to a little <sighs> 45 you know it's so neat that uh you know it, i love that it's back and it's, it's my always, mother I, told me that they used to have those in amusement parks when she was a little kid Oh yeah! You could actually go oh, into yeah. a record. You could go into a booth and make a record for like a dollar. Yeah, that's so amazing. <laughs> I would love to hear your big old upright bass live, like cut right to the vinyl. 
Like hear that back. That's I would be too. Bad. I might have to make a trip down there. <laughs> yeah, sure. it's an amazing place. Third man's yeah. wild. When when did you move to? At what age did you move to New York? And what was the first part of New York that you that you uh, lived in? Um, I I moved to New York uh, at age seventeen, right right after high school graduation. Wow. Um, wow. And I went to Juilliard. Um, so that's that's technically the reason I moved to New York, but I wanted to be in New York anyway, because, uh, all my jazz heroes were, were here. And, um, so I lived at campus housing, um, first, which was at the Y, <laughs> uh, oh. on 63rd and central park. So yeah. that, that was my first place of residence in New wow. York city. Uh, and then I briefly, so I only stayed at Juilliard for a year because, uh, as fate would have it, I, I, I started working pretty regularly. So, um, I, I knew I wasn't gonna, you know, I, I either had to make a decision to stay in school or keep making these gigs. So I decided to transfer to the university of the road. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I briefly lived with my friend, Mark Carey in Harlem. And then I moved to Brooklyn, Williamsburg. This is like 19, 1990, uh, lived in Williamsburg for two years. And then I moved to 27th in Lexington, and then I spent most of my time on the Upper East Side. I lived up there. Uh, I lived in a building called Normandy Court. Um, I lived there for almost 10 years, and then I got married and moved to New Jersey and, and been here ever since. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh, man, I want to backtrack a little bit because <clears throat> I want to talk about your early days in Philly. Yeah. I met up with this cat little John Roberts when he was still very, very young. That's and, my man. Um, you used to play with him. He, he played drums on my last record. Yes. And I used to play with him. He told me he was playing with you and Joey DeFrancesco. That's right. And was it Kurt Rosenwinkel? Kurt Rosenwinkel. That's right. <clears throat> I mean, it's like such heavyweights. And you guys were kids. Right? And, and, and uh, our second string drummer in the All-City Band was Questlove. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so this is why I said I want to talk about Philly. Yeah. What the hell is in the water in <laughs> Philly? I mean, you guys were like supermen. Well, I mean, what's in the water from where you're from down there in Virginia? All all them bad cats. <laughs> Newport News, right? Well, I'm from D.C., but when I was 19, I moved to Virginia Beach, and then that's where I met right. Billy Drummond. Right, Steve, Steve Wilson, Wilson right. James Genus, the Wooten Brothers, yeah, uh, and on and on and on and on. Yeah, well, yeah. man, you know, I, I think you, you, that that whole Amtrak line, DC, <laughs> Philly, <laughs> Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, um, but I was playing in the top forty band, and you were playing with Bobby Watson and stuff. You know? <laughs> You, know, you guys were killing. You had more people at your gig. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is still the same. It's like, it's funny you say that because we just got done with like Dodger Stadium and Wrigley right. Field and stuff. And it's like, <clears throat> I guess the grass is always greener. Uh, right? you I'm, know. Thinking, like, I'm so envious. Like, right. man, you play with all my heroes. And it's like, yeah, I did just play for 40,000 people. But, you know. <laughs> well, man, you know, I, 
it, it's such a thrill to, to be on here with you, man. You know, like like I said, I've been one of your biggest fans for so long. If if you will allow me, so OTO plays uh, two very distinct moments in my life uh, with regards yeah. to you. Um, you know, I'd always been a fan of your playing, but back, you know, it was like 20 years ago when there was that big Jaco Pastorius tribute at the Beacon. Oh, yeah. And, Most nervous uh, I ever been. Yeah, yeah well, let me tell you something. In my eyes, you stole the show that night, man. Because, you know, like everybody ah. in the world was on that gig. You know, Victor was there. <laughs> Steve was there. Uh, I think. And Victor all the cats that played there. with Jocko. That's right. There. Yeah. Don, Don Elias. Elias. Yep. Lenny White. All it was the rhythm <sighs> section. Gil Goldstein and uh, uh, Jeff Berlin. So all, all these cats were there. My and, stomach's uh, starting to hurt again. <laughs> man, you went out there and you played three views, uh, three views of a secret. Um, solo electric bass. Man, there was not a dry eye in the house. You really? You, man, dude, I was backstage mesmerized. Like, I knew OT was bad, but I didn't know he could do all that. <laughs> and man, at that point, I became I became a uh O.T.O. Burbage loyalist. Wow. And, uh, I didn't know that. So, I don't even remember the crowd reaction. I was so nervous. You First time my hands were in a cold sweat. I had never experienced that before. <laughs> but the, all the Jocko, all these people that played with Jocko were there and his family, you know, everybody was sitting out there and I was just like. That's right. Felix played that night, too. I was like, that might have been the first yeah. time a lot of people heard him. Richard Bona was there. And yeah, Richard Bona's right. Yeah, yeah. Dude, and I remember, I remember Anthony Jackson was backstage kind of pissed. He was like, how come nobody called me for this gig? Well, he's got a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I felt guilty because, you know, it's like, like still a lot of people, I mean, musicians know, but like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a doubler. But like, I thought, you know, it's like, wow, I'm on this gig and Anthony Jackson isn't. Oh, man, I. I yeah. I felt I felt like shriveling up and going home. <laughs> You've probably been in that position a lot, though. <laughs> Honestly, I, well, yeah, but I, I felt like particularly with that Jocko gig, that that might have been. Uh, actually, no, Victor Bailey was not on that gig. Um, I don't know why. I know he had been called, but uh, he didn't make it that night. But, Victor uh, Wooten and Steve Bailey. Right. That's what you're. You put the two no, names together. I, but no, yeah. I, I knew Victor Wooten was going to be, but I remember in my head thinking Victor Bailey was on that gig too, but yeah. but he wasn't now that I think about it. Yeah. But uh, my second uh, O'Teal story was, so, you know, I've had this career in radio now for the last uh, eight years or so. And um, uh, I've, been, I've been hosting Jazz Night in America on, on NPR since 2014. But I feel like, my trial by fire radio audition um, was in 2011. Um, I sat in for John Schaefer as host of Soundcheck on WNYC. And uh, I was the substitute host for, I think, three or four days or something like that. And they said, uh, you can pick your own guest. Who do you want your guest to be? You know, and, you know, if you want, invite some musicians and uh, you guys can jam. And so my first show as, as host 
for Soundcheck, you were my musical guest. That was the first one? That was the first oh. one. Wow. And um, I remember um, I had just gotten new Federa. And uh, yeah. you and I jammed that day. And um, I just remember being like, just like, first of all, I'm scared to be hosting live radio in New York City, of all places. <laughs> And then I got to play a duet with one of my bass heroes for the first time, you know, like all this on live radio, you talk about just being exposed on every level. <laughs> you're a New Yorker. You're tough. That's what you guys eat for breakfast. Oh man. Stress. Yeah, stress. stress and cheese, stress and cheese on a hard roll. <laughs> That's why you're one of my heroes because I, I have a, uh, New York just scared the crap out of me. Yeah. I was like, I couldn't go there and starve and get defeated <laughs> by the stress. Right. You know what I mean? I was just like, uh, and uh, I guess everything works out the way it's supposed to, but I admire the toughness of New Yorkers, even though I couldn't no, live your, there. Your problem, had you, had you moved to New York, you wouldn't have, your problem would have been being so good you just would have wiped so many cats off the map. You would have had to deal with all of the haters. <laughs> yeah, but I couldn't read music. Like one of the one of the big reasons I didn't move is because I don't read music. So I was like, well, all the session work, you're not. That won't be an avenue for you to be able to make money. And then all yeah, the well, jazz cats, since I don't play that upright, out. that would, you know. But this is all in my head. Like I didn't. Right. I was right. eighteen, nineteen year old. Right, yeah. right. Went to Virginia well, Beach. Well, like you said, man, th things things work out, and uh, you're still a big hero to so many, man. Well, I appreciate it, man. Well, I want to talk about some of your heroes that are all my heroes that you played with. <laughs> hey, let's let's go. Well, first of all, I, I, first of all, I guess the biggest question I want because this is a big thing that we do on on this podcast is we talk about certain themes mental health is one yes mentors is a big one talk to me about the mentors that were most important for you coming up um you know as you mentioned philadelphia is uh such a great music city you know uh, uh such a legacy and tradition um not just of musicians, but also music education. Uh, yes. I feel like Philadelphia is still one of the few places in the country where, you know, if you're a young kid wanting, wanting to play music, you still have schools to go to, a lot of private teachers you can study with. Um, so with that, uh, I had a number of great mentors, uh, uh, most namely a gentleman by the name of Lovett Hines, uh, Lovett Hines was the uh, band director at a place called the Settlement Music School. And um, uh, that's where I met Joey DeFrancesco. Um, mm. We started playing in that youth ensemble when, you know, I was 12. Uh, and, um, you know, basically everybody came through that ensemble. Kurt, uh, Rosenwinkel, like we mentioned earlier. Um, and so... Uh, I remained in touch with uh, Mr. Hines even after I 
left out of Philly. And, uh, you know, we're still close to this very day. So he was a great nice. mentor. Um, I studied with a man named Neil Courtney, uh, who was the associate principal basis for the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, mm. He passed away many years ago, but uh, he was a great mentor. Uh, a woman named Margie Keefe, who was actually my, my very first bass teacher in middle school. Um, uh, but so those were all teachers like, but the first musicians I met who were a little older than me, who were, uh, like big brothers to me. And, you know, um, I learned a lot of music from them as well as, you know, playing gigs, uh, were these brothers named the Landham brothers, Robert Landham and Byron Landham. Um, <clears throat> Robert Landham is one of the greatest saxophone players, uh, in the world. Uh, he played in the Ellington band for a while. Uh, he played in Joey D. Francesco's band for a while. And his brother Byron, um, great, great drummer, played with Betty Carter for a minute, uh, also played with Joey D. Uh, those were the guys who were, they weren't teachers, but they were older than me. So I thought of them as like my big brothers. And Robert would, I would go over to his, his house and he would say, uh, Hey man, I know what I know what they're showing you at school, but here, let me hip you to these Wayne Shorter albums. Let me hip you to yeah. these McCoy Tyner records, <laughs> uh, these Miles Davis records, you know. So, um, and uh, he knew theory and harmony really well. So, you know, we would sit down and we would listen to a record like ESP, and he would say things like, uh, you know, so listen to this line that Wayne plays over this. E seven sharp nine chord, you know, check these notes out, you know, so he could break yeah. things down for me, you know, in, in a real fun way. And, um, so I learned a lot from, from Robert and Byron. Do they teach that stuff at school now? Cause I always think, wow, they're not teaching Wayne shorter and miles in school, but back right. then were they not doing it? Was it all classical? Well, you know what I regret? Um, so I went to a, a, a performing arts high school in Philly, uh, creative and performing arts high school. And, um, you know, again, that's where me, Joey, Questlove, Black Thought, Boys to Men, uh, we, we, all went to, we all went to school there. And uh, Joey and I tested out of music theory. <laughs> they, they said, you know, you guys know all this stuff already. You don't need to go to this. And... Uh, so we actually never went to any music theory classes in high school because they assumed that we knew that stuff already. And uh, I, got you. I regret that, you know, I mean, yeah. I yeah. mean, I guess if they were breaking down triads, yeah, maybe, but like all that extended <laughs> harmony stuff that Robert was showing me, uh, I yeah. don't know if they were teaching that in music. I, I, I don't <laughs> think they were, I doubt it, but uh <laughs> Yeah, a lot of what I learned about harmony and, and theory, I learned that just like kind of from different cats around around Philly. It's Larry amazing. McKenna is another uh, person I must mention from Philly. He's he's still with us. He's in his late eight, I believe. But uh, there was a summer camp uh, at Community College of Philadelphia and Larry McKenna taught jazz harmony. And I learned more from Larry McKenna in that one summer because they had little tiny, they had keyboards like for every student. Mm. So he would have up on the, on the board, B flat 13. 
and he would show us how to voice a B flat 13 chord yeah. on the piano, you know, uh, uh, a half diminished, you know, and he would show us how to voice that on the piano. So, uh, that was just so it was fascinating. It was invaluable information. And, uh, so by the time I moved to New York city, I felt like I had a good grasp on a lot of basics. Yeah. You know, Otil, like you said earlier, there's a lot of themes that we talk about. One of them seems to be this community of education for people who are really mm-hmm. game. Like how many folks have we talked to that met at Berkeley or, or met at, you know, it seems like, like, you know, that those moments in school prepared you to go confidently into New York and be like, watch out, look what I got. Yeah. And, 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 and I you also, see it in different towns too. Yeah. 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 And on the other hand, I knew that, you know, it is New York and what you learn in school is not always easy to actually put into practice once you actually get out there and start working. Hmm. So, I, you know, I knew I was going to get embarrassed and, and get my ass kicked by, you know, a lot of the cats who were already on the scene. But I actually couldn't wait for that because more than anything else, I just wanted to be able to earn the right to be able to play with these cats. So, you know, if if I got my ass handed to me on the bandstand, Hey, I I knew that was coming. So I'm almost (laughs) in in a way, almost got into my head. Like, you know, you're going into the military almost, you know, so yeah, be prepared to get shown up. That's part of that Philly thing too. You know, it's like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah, I want it. I want all the smoke. Right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> so great. I love it. <laughs> That's too much. Well, um, I, it's one thing I try to talk to students about is <clears throat> you see this. As I love New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And my friends down there, you know, that town, we all know the Marsalis as far as jazz, but everything from, you know, the Batiste and right. uh, the Devils. Right. And, uh, you know, it's just all these families, right? Yeah. And I asked Ivan Neville one time, I was like, how are so many New Orleans musicians so good? Yeah, it's crazy, right? And, he, and I said, I know it's in the families. And, you know, yeah. I know it's in the water, but what? And he said, the, he said the music education, it was so strong in the schools. And I see that it's, you see that in Detroit. You know, Giovanni yes. Collier, bass player. Absolutely. Yep. JV. And he told he told me he was like, yeah, I got James Jamerson's SVT. I was like, what? I mean, not SVT, uh, B-15. I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. He's like, I got one. I was like, how in the hell did you get that? He goes, well, he was my high school bass teacher. I was like. I don't what? think I knew that. Wow. He was his high school. That's like crazy. He went to class at high school and brought his bass, and there was James James. Wow. But when you see that kind of education, if it's set up, you see this incredible harvest of man. Greatness. I can't think of any city that has had a strong educational system that has not produced some very serious musicians who are like navigating the way music goes in the world today you know philly detroit uh new orleans i mean like mm-hmm. so i i never understood why you always have to convince the powers that be that yeah, really. music education is important 
It's like, what's the first thing that gets cut? It's like, yeah, yeah you can make you can make tons of money off it. <laughs> you should right. that be enough, right? <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> you know, the Roots, they're actually trained musicians. John yeah. Batiste, he's actually a trained musician. You know, yeah. Kamasi Washington, he's a trained musician. Yeah. Esperanza Spalding, trained musician. They yeah. all came up through these arts programs. It makes me think that all these other towns like that have these crops, these harvests, like Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. There must have been some music education there. Because yes. you just have all these cats come out. I'm like, what's in the water in Tulsa? As that turns out, education's in the water. <laughs> See, there you go. And it's so sad to right. see so many schools have to like go like ask for money for instruments or right. ask right. for anything just to help save the uh, you know music education programs. It's really terrible. Yeah, you know, I um my my wife started a nonprofit called Jazz House Kids many years ago, and um, uh, it was for that very reason, you know, because uh, mm -hmm. she got called to do a master class, and uh, and at that time it was in Newark, and uh, Newark at one point had a very strong music educational system, and then they started cutting those, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Melissa smartly put two and two together and say, well, look, if these schools are going to start getting rid of their music programs, maybe I should start a nonprofit, you know? And uh, so we've dedicated ourselves to, to music education. That's great. Much yeah. like you cats bless. have, you know? Man, bless you for doing that. That's definitely one of the things I wanted to talk about and plug. Uh, you just do so much, man. I mean, you're a, you're an amazing human. I don't know how you have the time to well, do all of it, but you got a radio show on Sirius, right? Then you got your weekly radio show on NPR. Right. You got Jazz House Kids. You're the artistic director for Newport Jazz Festival. And also Get Ready. Jersey Pack. Is that what it is? <laughs> MJ Pack. Yes, MJ Pack. Yep. And probably more than I mean, how do you fit it all in? Oh, well, brother, you, I mean, you know how we do, man. We, we're always, uh, we never can just play bass. We always got to have some, uh, some side hustle going somewhere. Um, all this other stuff, man, I, I never, I never prepared or, or, uh, uh, frankly ever even thought about doing any of this other stuff, you know, uh, curating, uh, arts administration, radio. I mean, all this, that, that stuff just kind of, came from just simply showing up to the gig and playing the bass and really uh, having a passion of uh, studying people. You know, uh, I, yeah. I really love people as much as I love playing the bass, you know? Uh, yeah. And I think it is because, and I mean, you cannot, you're from DC, so you can identify with this. I mean, you know, growing up in Philly, you know, uh, everybody was tough. You know, you had to play the dozens every day, you know, people talking about your mother and calling you fat. And, you know, it's like every day was a struggle, you know, just, yeah. um, just coming through the hood, you know, and like, uh, you had to develop a thick skin and I think I had developed semi thick skin, but, uh, it hit me one day, like, 
look at people's reaction when you're actually nice to them, you know, and uh, I I always kept that in mind. So like, you know, when I would be yeah. around the guys in the neighborhood and, you know, they'd be torturing people, you know, I would see those people when I wasn't with them and be like, hey, how you doing? And a simple, hey, how you doing would always get such a, a wonderful reaction from people. They'd be like, oh, hey. How you doing? Yeah. You know, <laughs> okay, be happy. Yeah. Right, right. And so uh, I, I, I had learned early, like you know, just simply be nice to people. You know, you, you, you could, you could probably find out who they really are. You know, so, uh, and I know sometimes in the hood it's the other way around. You know, it's like you know, you know, you, 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 you be hard on people. You know, you kind of get to their core in a certain sort of. Uh, semi-cruel way, and that's how you find out who they are. But I, I always try. To, I like going the reverse. <laughs> well, sometimes no good deed goes unpunished. But that's I true. still that's go. That too, right? <laughs> that's what. <laughs> I would retreat from the hood. I would just like go into the music room, and me and Kofi would play, and I was right. like, "It's crazy." you know the niceness doesn't get rewarded. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but now man. that I look back, now that I look back, like. I'd see all the people back in the neighborhood. I was like, yeah, it really was that way. I, yeah. uh, there was a lot of really, and still are. Some of them are still there. It's really cool. Yeah. Did you know a guy named, um, I'm trying to think all my, uh, how old were you when you moved to Virginia? I graduated high school in 82, so I think I left in 83. You might know Ron Sutton. Did you know Ron Sutton? Man, when, when I lived in Harlem with Mark Carey, Ron Sutton uh -huh. was uh, one of our roommates. See, see that was that was stupid. Him and Kofi were the ones that were trying to say, I'm a drummer. So I uh -huh. know jazz yep. from drumming. Yes. And so when I started playing electric, it was like called Bootsy and, you know, which is why your rhythm is so strong. Well, it was like Earth, Wind, and Fire, Stevie Boots. Sure. Yeah, but then that, then Kofi, my older brother, and Ron Sutton were the ones that were explaining jazz harmony to me. God, God bless and both I, their souls, man. Yeah, I couldn't get it all. Like I'm starting to get it more now. Right. But yeah, that's crazy. You were roommates with Ron Sutton. Yeah. Oh, too much, man. Small that world, man. Back. Yeah, like 16 years old, man. 15, 16 years old. So my, um, so <sighs> to know, I, I got to be in the James Brown inner circle. And that was because <laughs> of a guy from DC who was his drummer named Mousy. You know, Mousy Thompson by any chance? I don't. Yeah. I so, don't. um, uh, Robert, I left there in 83. I don't know if, yeah, he, uh, he and, uh, I can't remember who he came after Ricky Wellman in uh, Chuck Brown's band. Yeah, so, Chuck Brown, uh, the soul searches. That's right. <laughs> so Mousy oh, went from Chuck Brown to Wilson Pickett to James Brown. And uh, he nice. still lives in D.C. <laughs> wow. That's cool. Yep. So now James Brown, we got it because you play with all my heroes. This is what I want to do. What was it like playing <laughs> What was it like playing with Sonny Rollins? What was it like playing with Herbie? You know, like, <laughs> let's start at James Brown. <laughs> well, man, you, you, you've heard enough stories about James Brown that you could probably figure out exactly what I would tell you. You know, I, I had no different an experience 
than uh than anyone else i mean obviously the man was a genius but uh yeah he was quite uh <laughs> quite tempestuous <laughs> unpredictable um you know when he was in a when he was in a good mood it was wonderful when he was not in a good mood you didn't want to be in the same city <laughs> Did he ever call you? My favorite stories are when like your phone rings and you look at your cell phone and you're like, oh, that's Bootsy <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah. You ever right. get the James Brown phone call? You're like, damn, James Brown just called me. Well, I'll t- I, I can't play it for you, but, uh, you know, I've, <laughs> I've made it a habit of saving my favorite voicemails. Um, I started that in the, in the mid 90s back when we wow. had the uh, uh, answering machines with a, a, a cassette tape in it. So you got and like a terabyte of them now. I, yes, <laughs> yeah. And so I've saved all of my favorite voicemails and uh, I, I have three, uh, two voicemails from James Brown's secretary that I always saved. And, um, uh, but probably the best phone call I ever got from, uh, from James Brown and, and this, you know, when you get a call from the Godfather of Soul, this is how it goes down. It's almost like it's presidential. So uh, the phone rings and I see Augusta, Georgia on the caller ID and I pick up the phone. I say, hello, is this Christian McBride? Yes. Please hold. I have James Brown on the line. And they, they put me on hold. Living in America comes on the whole system. <laughs> She she comes back about 15 seconds later Amazing. and she says, uh, Mr. McBride, okay, Mr. Brown, go ahead, please. And then the phone clicks and then James Brown comes on the line. Now, as far as I know, that's the way you received a phone call from the president. You know, <laughs> it is. Because I remember and living like, in America was playing too, probably. Yeah, that's right. Living in- <laughs> so I remember like, uh, like during the world, like anytime a team would win the World Series and like the president would call into the team at the end, you know, it, that's, that's how it went down, you know. And I was like, wow, a simple phone call from James Brown is, is just the sheer entertainment and drama of it all, you know. But that's, that's legit. Amazing. Like I have a picture of James Brown standing next to his jet with Richard Nixon. Yeah. Like, you know, like it's. That's legit. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 you got to adapt the man for, you know, understanding the value of his power. <laughs> so what's what are some other phone calls that you were just like, because I've had some like that I can't show people. I was like, wow, if I if I just turn my phone around right now. But that's more from the rock and roll and not. Yeah, like, but I'm sure you still get those hero. calls, man. No, like I don't pick up my phone and it says Sonny Rollins. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) no, but I know you've had those calls from, I mean, I I can't imagine who, you know, looking at your phone, man, or or just uh, the wagging tongues at the end of every gig, you know, like, you know, because you do that to people, man. 
Well, See, I get I get I'm a lot lucky. of nerds at the end of the at the gig. You know, <laughs> what kind of strings do you use on your bass? Oh my goodness, I love how you superimpose the flat nine on that dominant seventh chord. You know, uh, but you get people that actually, you know, like, oh my God, O'Teal, you play the hell out of the bass. <laughs> it's funny because my my friend Tom Guarno, who's like a jazz guitarist in New York. He said one of the cats he was playing was like, yeah, man, you playing all them starve notes. <laughs> like the, the nerdy, like the flat nine, blah, blah, blah. And that's been my thing. It's like, can I get away with playing the flat nine with vocals and people actually get it? And yeah, turns out it. Grateful Dead was the way to do it. Yes, that's right. Who knew? That's right. The harmony's deep with them, man. Like these tunes are deep. In fact, I would love to hear you play Stella Blue because oh my God. I was I love their ballads. Sure. And I kept thinking this this ballad Stella Blue and China Doll too. Yes. Yeah. I, was like, I keep hearing something in the air over it, and I realized it was an upright bass solo. I was like, I think I'm hearing Mingus like soloing over this. Right, 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 like, right, you would, right. You would kill it, man. You would man. kill it, dude. And have you fun. Know- I got to play with Bob once. Um, really? It was at a, uh, a fundraiser uh, somewhere out in Northern California. And uh, we, just did some, we just did some jamming. And uh, oh man, it was I such a like thrill that. to play with him. Yeah, it was fun. Wow. You're so open-minded for like a jazz cat. Like when I think of all the cats that know, like for people, for our Comes of Time fans who are, you know, largely Grateful Dead, Allman Brothers band, right? They might not know a lot of the names that I throw out, but you are so intimately connected with the tradition from Ray Brown, and you probably hung out with Slam Stewart, right? No, he. I, I did see him live when I was in high school. It had to have been one of his last gigs. I, I think he he passed away when I was uh, I was still a teenager, but I did get to see him live. Yeah. That was unforgettable. I mean, this is. For our fans, this is someone who has recordings in the 30s. Right. That's know? right. <laughs> like, and so you're such a historian and such, uh, I don't, won't say a traditionalist, but you, nobody, <laughs> you know the tradition as well as anybody, but your mind is so open to like play with Bob Weir or. Right. Well, you know, thank you, I mean, brother. you played with McCartney, right? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I mean, I will tell Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at Smart Wool. For more than 25 years, Smart Wool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They're here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. Hey, brother, I was, uh, thank you for that, man. I owe a lot, I know, I owe a lot of that to being from Philly because I heard a lot of different music coming across my radar just every day, you know, everything from Gambling Huff to Hall and Oates to the Philadelphia Orchestra, uh, yes, and like all all kinds of stuff, you know, and and then uh, avant garde jazz, uh, fusion, straight ahead. So like, 
you didn't really have a chance to get into one thing because it was just too much music mm-hmm. around you all the time, you know. You're um, a problem to have. You're right, right. Yeah. But specifically, my great uncle, um, who was the, he's the sole reason I fell in love with jazz. Uh, it wasn't until later on I realized how dogmatic a lot of jazz jazz fans are like they love nothing but jazz they're they're uh yeah. they're they're almost uh they're protective of the tradition almost to a detriment you know it's like anything yeah. you like outside of this tradition is straight up bad <laughs> you know <laughs> but my great uncle who taught me about charlie parker thelonious monk dizzy gillespie miles davis john coltrane he never once said to me that, you know, uh, you know, cause most, most older jazz cats were like Prince. Oh man, you know, you don't need to listen to that stuff, man. You <laughs> just listen to miles. You know, you don't need that Prince, <laughs> uh, all, all that Michael Jackson bullshit, all that Jay, you don't need all that, you know, but my great uncle never once said that that contemporary pop music was not worth listening to. Um, he yes. knew I, he knew I was a James Brown head. He knew I was a Michael Jackson Prince head, and never once did he tell me to stop listening to that. He said, "Man, I love yeah. all those guys. Man, keep that in your palate. Just add this on to it. You know, that's great. Yeah. So I always thank him for that because he never he never once gave me any strange looks for listening to pop or rock or or or, or, or rap as it was known in before it was hip hop. You know, yeah." So, uh, yes, he embraced it all. Well, and what's interesting about a lot of those pure, like you said, the folks that try to like, you know, maintain that legacy or, or, or protect it is if they looked at some of these, like maybe musicians from these other genres and realized if they put two layers back onto the onion, it's jazz that inspired what they're listening to. You know, I always felt like I, I it, when it comes to education, particularly with jazz education, I find it hard, like, if you're 16, 15, 16, 17 years old, and you're just even slightly curious about learning about jazz, I'm surprised more teachers don't start from contemporary and work their way back. They start at, like, the yeah. 20s or the 30s, oh, and, yeah. they, and they try yeah. to bring them up to speed. That's, but, yeah, that's yeah. a good point. It's hard. It, you, you can you, start you know, you with might, Luther Vandross and go back with Marcus back a few miles, right? Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> so I'll say, well, I would think it would be easier to grab them with something that they like now and like slowly yeah. start backtracking. And, right. and I think it's, yeah. it's fascinating when you do that, you know. I learned about so much jazz through hip hop, like A Tribe Called Quest. Of course. And De La Soul and Absolutely. Nas and The Roots and all of that because, you know, I, I love to – it was kind of neat that it was like almost little samples of tastes and flavors of right. different music and then you go find it. And then you're like, oh, that's that whole song. Like, that's neat. It's, oh, that's Art Blakey. Wow, that's neat. Like, you know, I learned yep. that in a you know tribe song or whatever. And that's, that's really right. cool. That's, that, that, that's awesome. Your uncle gave you that, you know, kind of listen to all of it and just stack it on top. You know, and and you know my 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 uncle Howard. That's that's my great uncle. We've been talking about um, his core, like the music he loved, like his go to was like Ornette Coleman, Cecil Taylor, Albert yeah. Eiler, Sun Ra. He's a huge fan of like that way out avant garde, right? Yeah. And uh, the the outer the better, 
right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I love it. And uh, but he never once told me like, you know, hey man, this is this is what you should listen to. He was so balanced in like the music that he taught me. You know, he would play some Sun Ra and follow it up with like Louis Armstrong, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then follow that up with Weather Report and then follow that up with like Nat King Cole, you know, so like yeah. yeah. He knew so much about every every era and and style of jazz. But once he was done teaching, you know, he light up his joint time for and Albert put on, just, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's time for James Blood Omer. You know it. You know it. You know. You know, it's funny, I never heard all that stuff till I met one of my biggest mentors, Colonel Bruce Hampton. Yes. And what he taught me about was folk music. Mm-hmm. And then when I I'll never forget when I heard it was Pine Top Perkins. And the way Pine Top was playing blues was so close to Sun Ra and Monk. Like, yeah. in a way, it was out. And I went, oh, all yep. of this is folk music. And then yes. I understood Sun Ra, and especially seeing it, because we went to see Sun Ra, and we actually hung out with him. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, he blew our minds, dude. It was so heavy. Um, I, I showed someone a Sun Ra video. And uh, I wish I could remember who it was, and they and they were they were mesmerized by this video, and they were like, "Yo, that's George Clinton and the P Funk All Stars a generation before George Clinton and the yeah, P Funk All Stars like in the fifties." Yeah. yeah, the mothership, yeah. everything, the album. That's right. That's right. The whole, and he's to me like a lot of people cover around midnight, but man, when Sun Ra plays Mug, it's like, whoa. oh man, that's right. Or when so Monk deep. plays I, Duke Ellington, you know, so like that whole mm, backtrack, yes. the tradition oh. thing, you know. Yes, Man, it, it comes back. It all comes back. It's funny you would say that because like I first learned about, I read about Ornette Coleman before I heard his music. And uh, mm. when my when my great uncle was getting me into jazz, he he brought me a big stack of downbeat magazines. He was like, hey, you know, I want you to read up on the music. So wow. I would read these magazines and I would see, you know, what these critics would, would say about Ornette Coleman, you know, father of the avant-garde, you know, the last great jazz innovator, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, cutting edge, you know, all, all of those, uh, you know, sort of cliche phrases that they use for musicians that, you know, are kind of off the beaten path. So I, I remember I first heard, um, I think it might have been the album, uh, The Shape of Jazz to Come. Yeah. And uh, I like the first three or four Ornette Coleman pieces I ever heard in my life. I, I, I remember, I vividly remember, I remember my reaction. It was kind of like, what's so out about this? Like, I hear the blues. You know, like it's, like it's like it's like abstract blues to me. You know, it's, it sounds it sounds like Ornette Coleman's quartet sounds blues. like a bunch of uh, drunk country western musicians that didn't rehearse. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what I heard. A friend of mine uh, plays keyboards with me, Jason Crosby. We were talking about Ornette yeah. and how I thought Ornette and Cecil and these guys were like folk music. He was like, "Oh yeah." I went over his house and played with him one day. I was like, what? So he put it on my, he, he gave it to me. I have it on my computer. We were listening to it. And I was just like, it's the blues, man. It's the, it's, blues. It's the blues. It's folk music. 
it's just the blues in every key all at once. It's like Picasso. Uh, that's right. That's right. You know, the nose is over here. <laughs> you know, which yeah. is why I have a, I've always had a big problem with, uh, particularly with jazz critics. They, they seem to really love things that don't have blues in it. You know, I can't get, I can't get with that, man. It's got to have you know, even Art Tatum, it can something. be as technical as it can be, but it's got to have that. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I, I, I've always loved doing that Coma's music just because uh, I, I can hear, I can feel the roots in it, you know, that yeah. roots music. No matter how weird it gets, there's always some gravity with the, with the roots music in there. And I always tell these guys, like, you know, I love inside. I love architecture. I love the Sistine Chapel, the Eiffel Tower, the pyramids, whatever. But if your mom dies, are you going to cry in a key? Ooh. No. Right? You're, there's, there's human expression yeah. that yeah. has to come out. And these guys could not keep a lid on it. Coltrane got to that point. He was like, there's something more that's trying to, you know, and it just was like, ah, you know? I, I, I often try to wonder, like, like you fantasize where I'm sure you've done this, too. We've all done this. Like, what would have Coltrane taken on next had he lived? You know, what would Hendrix have taken on next had he lived? You know, like, well, because like sometimes I think about Coltrane, like. I almost feel like maybe he thought that his he knew his time was short. And so he had to, I wonder that, you know, because yeah. you study his career and it's like it, 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 as much artistic ground as he covered in such a short period of time, like, like what, what would he have possibly done next? You know, I mean, he <laughs> probably would have had to embrace electric music, you know, I mean, I didn't I, even think of that. Yeah. Part oh, of me feels like he might have hooked up with Hendrix before, you know, everybody put Miles and Hendrix together. I, yeah. I think Train probably would have hooked up with Hendrix before Miles. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Really? God. Yeah. It's, it's so great to think about because, you know, <clears throat> I even look at um, pairings like Ornette when, when Colonel Bruce was helping me understand and showing, helping me get it. All my friends were deadheads that were trying to turn me on to the Grateful Dead, which I didn't get back then. But then we came across this album with uh, Ornette had Jerry Garcia on it. Yeah. So who knows what, what, what the cats would have done had they lived. I mean. And of course, Ornette with uh, the Plastic dead. Ono band. <laughs> with what? Say it again. With the, and Ornette with the Plastic Ono band, with Yoko Ono's. John Yoko. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, John yeah. And Yoko. Yeah. I mean, these cats were open minded. Like, mm. who knows what they would have done? So and then, much you know, great. sometimes you go back and look at like cats, like I found out, you know, from Colonel Bruce that Farrell Sanders played with Bobby Blue Bland. Yes. You know? That's right. And T Bone Walker had, was it Barney Castle? No. It was yeah. A, it was Castle, right? Barney. Yeah, no, you were right. Yeah, and I'm like, yep. oh man, these, you know, there's this, they know about that route, you know? And so, so I, I started, uh, you know, I started doing some work with Edgar Meyer um, about oh, a decade yeah. ago. And, uh, you know, being around Edgar, I said, hey man, you know, I, I knew how 
you know, how much of a king and legend he is, not just in the classical world, but also in the bluegrass world. Yeah. So yeah. I said, man, teach me about some of this stuff. So, um, oh, nice. Yeah. Being around Edgar and learning about, uh, so many, you know, uh, um, these great players in the history of, of, uh, of bluegrass, you know, he, uh, he introduced me to Sam Bush. Um, yep. and, and, and I learned about people like the Stanley brothers, you know, and, yeah. um, God, uh, I know you knew this stuff. This is yeah, what man. I learned from the Colonel, man. I played all these bluegrass gigs where I'm, I know for a fact I was the first black guy to ever play some of these festivals. Right. Right. <laughs> And I, I, man, the first musicians I met, Scott Vestal and Matt Mundy and Jeff Autry yeah. and Martin, I was like, these guys are killing. And they turned me on to Sam Bush. That's how I got on to Edgar Meyer and Ben right. Fleck and Bader all Fleck. these guys. Stuart right. Duncan. Yep, Stuart. Uh, yep. You know, just tons of them just killing. And, and Chris Steely is just. In, oh. Chris and is annoyingly great. He's yeah. Isn't he a MacArthur Genius Award guy? I wouldn't be surprised. I'm pretty probably. sure Telius. But you know, I was gonna tell you, so learning about that, I, I started backing my way into like learning about like country music. And mm -hmm. um I didn't you know, I'd always heard, but I didn't quite know like like jazz guys, particularly Charlie Hayden. Now, now here's mm -hmm. where all of these 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 roads connect. So I knew yeah. Charlie Hayden from Ornette Coleman, yeah. and Ornette Coleman is from Texas, which is where all that blues comes from. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize Charlie Hayden grew up singing country music with with yeah. his family. So like, there's this whole country western avant garde blues roots music, <laughs> you know, coming together. And then I met and started hanging with Gary Burton and Gary Burton yeah. told me about his history with, with country music. And then Gary said, oh, man, you need to check yeah. out a guy named Hank Garland. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I started listening to Hank Garland, who was known mo mostly in the, in the country music world as, as a session guitarist, but like the guy was totally straight out of the, you know, Charlie Christian, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, straight up jazz guitar, uh, you know, Kenny Burrell and all of those yeah. cats. And uh, I bought his first album on uh, Columbia, which I believe Gary played on. And he's playing like all this killing jazz stuff. So yeah. like the lines are so blurred if you just like look at the history of this if music. So go back. It pays to have an open mind because you, you learn more. You learn more about music, people, culture. People the world you know yeah it's true i got a good one for you because we found this when i met matt monday was a mandolin player with colonel brutes and he's from forsyth county georgia like uh -huh. up in north georgia and totally in the bluegrass world so i turned him on to charlie christian mm -hmm. and he was like hey i know that song i know that song and i was like how do you know these songs already he goes off from Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. That's he it. He had a mandolin player, Tiny Moore, right? Yeah. And so I found out, I was like, wait a minute. These guys are playing the same tunes they all knew about each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I heard this group playing like, Caravan, Duke Ellington's Caravan. And uh, 
it wasn't Ellington's band. It sounded like a country band. I went like, who in the world is this? And uh, somebody said, uh, this is Ernest Tubb. And I said, uh, who is Ernest? And, and, then, and then I started, I started paying attention to Ernest Tubb. And I was like, oh, my gosh. You just learn. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing when you learn stuff. Yeah. Well, we always come back to this thing of like, um, God, what if slavery hadn't happened? Mm. Think of the music that we would not have. Because bluegrass is um, Bill Monroe. Learned right. All these Celtic tunes from his grandmother. Right. And then this old black guy that would play at these field things that would go over two, three nights straight. Name, I think his name was Arnold Schultz. Mm-hmm. And he taught him the blues. Right. And he mixed Celtic music with the blues and created bluegrass. And Sweet. the same is with uh, Jimmy Rogers, Hank mm-hmm. Sr. I think Jimmy Rogers did a record with Louis Armstrong. Yes. Yeah. All these black and white, like, and you know, it's people. And I found these, I met these people. I lived in uh, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee for almost 40 years. I'm all these people that they've not racist, never been racist. Yeah, yeah. And the music thing, they were all like, yeah, it goes way back. Yeah. Way back. You know, it's a sadly, sadly, it's a dangerous narrative to suggest that that there could possibly be white people in the world who aren't racist. (laughs) (laughs) It is sad, isn't it? Especially from the South. From the specifically from the south, that's right. It's, yeah. And God, and don't let them be Christians. Oh, I oh know. Boy. Them. I know yeah. them. I played but with you, them. You got to take life case by case. You can't. You can't put everybody under an umbrella. You know. No, man. I, I could not. blow people's minds if yeah. I could pull some people on this podcast right now. You heard their accent. <laughs> you know? and, and, and that's the part about that's the part about being open minded and actually. You know, you know, not judging people for what they are. You know, it's that's too easy yes. to do. You know, yeah. oh, you know, you're an older white person from the south who never really had much access to anything outside of your community. You're probably racist, right? That's yep. you can't you can't do that, right? No, I, no I, more I, than no more than they could say. Oh, you're a black guy yes. from West Philadelphia. You know, you must, be Washington. A, you must be a thug gangster, you know. Right. It's too easy. Yeah. It's even if you're a rapper, easy. even right. if you're a rapper, right? Uh, it, totally. So, now, you know? look, I mean, obviously, there is a, a very true American narrative when it, with regards to slavery and racism and, and discrimination. But inside of that, uh, you got to know that there are some bright lights and some ways through that uh, that that um, that painful history of of our country. Yes. Well, if you couldn't have had the Underground Railroad with just black people, I don't think you could have much <laughs> of, of anything of anything without some help from yes. somewhere. You know, that's the truth. I experienced this directly when I, I went to a church down there that uh, it was a white Southern Baptist church. 
I had been challenged by my ex-wife to go. We weren't married yet. I was like, well, if you can find a church where we can go, where we're buying a house together, we live together and we're not married, I'll go. And a gay friend of ours who's at the house said, well, you can go to my church. I'm a deacon. We said a real church, not whatever Fruit Loops church let you be a deacon. And he said, well, it's a Southern Baptist church. So I was like, well, now I just got to see this. So I yeah. went up. A lot of the congregation was openly gay. Mm. I was like, this was in the late 90s. I was like, wow. What? Okay, so there's an old lady there named Polly. She's 92. And I was interviewing people at the church because I was just like, for posterity, for this very reason, to show they exist. And I said, Polly, I hate to stereotype you because I'm black and you've been stereotyped a lot. Right. But as a 92-year-old, like, how are you not racist? Right. Yeah. You know? And She, she said, probably well, appreciated I, that question, though, right? She worked in the field with black people. Mm-hmm. And she said, I was treated just as bad as black people. She said, they didn't care about the peons. I had never even heard that word. Right. Right. And so she was raised because she was just one of the black. She was treated just as badly. Right. Right. And I was Man. like, well, yeah, the poor and the rich don't give a shit. The rich don't give a shit about the poor, even if they're the same color. Man, listen, my my mother-in-law, uh, rest her soul, she she passed away a few years ago. But she was uh, an Italian-American woman from, from Queens who married a black man from Brooklyn in 1954. Did not go over well, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and so she was... Uh, blacklisted by the family, her family, and um, they wound up going to college together at the uh, University of Michigan. And my, uh, my, my mother-in-law told me about a letter that she had received from the dean, you know, saying, you know, you are desecrating our, our, our university, you know, how dare you date a black man, you know, so uh, he played football and was drafted by the Green Bay Packers. And he said, look, if we're having this kind of trouble being together in, you know, Michigan, <laughs> God knows we're not going to be received well in Green Bay. So yeah. he decided to go to Canada. He played in the CFL, which mm. is why Melissa was born in Canada. Um, wow. And so I would hear these stories that she would tell and, uh, she was like, look, I'm an, I'm an Italian-American girl from, from Queens. She was like, I experienced so much racism just for me. I can't imagine what it's like being black. You know, she was like, <laughs> um, she was yeah. like that is, she, she was like, that whole word is not in my, in, you yeah. know, I don't know that word. And anybody who, you know, demonstrates any little nuance of racism, you know, she was like, I'm, I'm very sensitive to that. And you just yeah. mentioned how, you know, class, I think, is probably more of an issue that I think we should pay closer attention to because, mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse me, I think King figured that out. I, in did. my heart, I really believe that was sort of like the final straw for people who did not like Martin Luther King. Because that's what got him killed. That's what got him killed, man. When he finally figured, when he started telling poor white people that, you know what? And poor black people, we have more in common than you think. 
you know, this isn't about racism. They don't like us because we don't have any money and we can't do anything for, you know, the what now that now they're called the one percent. He's like, but you yeah. think the powers that be care care about you because you're white? No, they if you don't have any money, we're all the same color. And that's, Amen. When that's tried how to organize. Trump got elected. That's right. He said, you that's think right. the powers that be care about you because you're white? And Bernie said the same thing. That's right. That's right. And then his own party killed him and they went for the other guy. God, it just kills me. And when King tried to organize the poor people's march, you know, with with uh, poor white farmers and, and, and black sanitation workers. And, you know, it's like now you can see like a rainbow of poor people coming together. I, I firmly believe the 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 proverbial powers that be said, OK, that's a, no. He's yeah. now organizing white and black men, women, all poor. Uh, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. They will promote division or let they'll leave division alone. Yeah, that's right. If you're super right. divisive. Yeah. I'm not calling any names, but you'll be just fine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's right. You will live long. Yeah. And I, I often day. wonder, like, um, man, you know, it, I, I know it's dangerous to get into a, a, a non-musical conversation, but like <laughs> if if to really focus on things like that, um, you know, sometimes I wonder if we, you know, as a society, I think social media has not helped. Uh, mm-hmm. We get distracted by a lot of things that aren't quite that important. And then while we get distracted by things that aren't quite that important, the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus yes. Wade. You know? Corporations are making stuff legal right. that should be illegal. Yeah. And it's like, we're not breaking any laws. It's like, right. yeah, because you made some messed up. You lobbied, yep. Yep. you know, but that that gets us. I don't want to keep you too long, but. I do want to cover. I'm here for you, brother. (laughs) Thank you. It does bring us to another topic that's a big theme of our podcast, which is mental health. Yes. And for me, part of mental health is not being suckered, like being able to see the big picture. Yes. But also, like, you know, in our line of work, being musicians, um, I won't say especially, but, you know, it's the music business. We struggle a lot with drugs. You know, sex, alcohol, whatever. Like, how have you navigated that? Because my heroes, I love it. My heroes that live a really long time. The Roy Haynes and the, you know. Sonny Rollins. Yeah. 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 Sonny, like, you just, I saw Dizzy. Yeah, Herbie. Like, so how have you, what helped you get a zoomed out perspective, like, Hey man, or were you always that, that way with drugs and alcohol? And the well, thing? brother, I really meant that that's bless you for talking about this, man. Um, because as all of us know, one thing that is, has always been very frustrating for me is everyone seems to think our lives are great. You know, Oh man, you get to play music. You know, you go around the world and playing for people, you know, it's not work. It's like, no, it's, it's work. You know, I mean, the look, playing part is at work, but the other 22 right. hours of the that's day. Right. Yeah, living your dream is a nightmare. A lot yeah. of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Mike's on yeah. the road as a stand-up comedian a lot. So the lonely hotel thing is. Benny, Benny Golson would say like, uh, you get paid to suffer 
22 hours of the day as opposed to those two hours that you're on stage. That's it. That is it. Thank you for that. Yeah. There was a a gig I did in Atlantic City that was a seven-day run, and I did 20 minutes of work a day. I had 23 hours and 40 minutes off. Yeah. a day and i'm like what yeah. do i do i don't want to go down and gamble i just quit smoking so right. i'm like i don't even want to be in the casino area you know right negative 10 degrees and icy out and whatever and i'm just yeah it's me in these four walls like let's try not to completely break down you know people, and how many of our that, friends man. how many of our friends have died recently yeah trying to not being able to manage like killing time yeah. You know, yeah, the isolation, are dying, but yeah, yeah, dying inside, I mean, even though the outside's still, you know, blood still might be still be pumping, but everybody got is. a taste of it during the pandemic. Yeah, being that's isolated. Right. I'm like, ah, welcome to my world, mother. <laughs> you know, right. like, <laughs> the right. like, you know, the pressure to produce, you know, like that, that pressure to, you know, like when you go on stage to perform. Like, I'm really shocked at how many people think that's easy to do. Like, I know how I am, man. It's like, before the, I didn't realize I was like this until recently. Like, um, I have to get my head in the game. Like, I don't care how many times I go on stage night after night to play. I got to get my head right before I go on stage. And when I get my head right, that means I, I just, I can't talk to anybody 15 minutes before showtime. You know, I just got to be like, let me get my head in the game. What are we going to play? What's the vibe like? You know, like I really do feel like an athlete to a certain extent. And like most of the time, I mean, y'all know people just want to come back and hang and hey, what are you guys going to play tonight? I'm like, I don't know. Get the eh, out of my dressing room, you know, and like, yeah. I don't say that, but that's what I'm thinking, you know, and like you finish playing, your heart's pumping, you're sweating. And then like people immediately want to come backstage and like, kick it and hang. I'm like, look, you just got to give me 10 minutes. Let me give me 10 minutes to decompress. And I will be the nicest guy in the world, but I need a little room to get my head right. You know? And I think that's part of the mental health thing that, that, that you're talking about. I, I, growing up in Philly, man. And and I know you saw this as well. I never knew what the phrase, like most guys I knew growing up in Philly that did drugs, you could tell they did drugs and like none of them were cool. Like, yeah. like anybody I saw who was doing, I mean, I didn't really see too much heroin, but a lot of, a lot of cocaine and, and yeah. crack, which was becoming more and more popular in the mid and late eighties. Um, I never saw anyone do it, but you could tell when there was a, you know, somebody on that stuff, man, you could just tell. So when I moved to New York and started meeting people who were, I didn't know the phrase, but functioning addicts. Yes. Uh, I didn't know what that meant. You know, yeah, high functioning addicts. So, you know, I could see musicians who could drink like a whole fifth of scotch and still get on stage and play. Cats who would do like, you know, uh, a bunch of coke and still show up for the gig. Like, um, but I also realized that their bodies slowly disintegrated, you know, like they weren't functioning for a long period, you know, they eventually hit a wall. And so I was, I think growing up around a lot of sloppy addicts, 
that really helped me not to want to be one. Cautionary and tales. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And plus, and plus, my mom's great. You know, my mother was always, <laughs> you know, she put the fear of God in me when it came to drugs and alcohol. You know, she's yeah. like, if I even, if I even think you on that any of that stuff. <laughs> well, and from and from that mental health perspective, and thinking about what you said earlier about how about how busy you stay and how many yeah. projects you have at once and how many things you have in the air. You know, I, I, I think that this idle time, we talk about it a ton, how this pandemic, yeah. like, it's like we were all running from something and then we had to hit the brakes and everything we ran from, it was like a 10 right. car pile up behind yes. us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like now what? Right. So you staying so busy and having so many projects and having that, like, that's a, in my opinion, a, uh, a really important tool for mental health because yeah. you take pride in what you do you're a professional and you put that into everything that you do. So like that there's, you don't leave time for yeah, that's those right. issues yeah. and, and, that, and that's super important. And for that reason, I always had to parse my words carefully, but like I enjoyed being locked down. I enjoyed not working for yeah, almost two too. years. You I know, <laughs> man, I I, you know, it's like, you mean to tell me I don't have to wake up at four thirty AM to, Go to the airport and go to the next gig. Yes. Yes. When I just went to bed at four a.m. Right. Yeah. Right, I'll do laundry right. at the next hotel. I exactly. love that one. Yeah. That's right. I'll do laundry at the next town. And you know, it's like uh, you know, you, you know, people don't get it when they started making those uh those washable underwear. Oh man, that was like the greatest thing in the world for touring musicians. You know, I'd be in the be in the bathroom. You know scrubbing them bad boys and take the hair dryer and dry them bad boys off you know but like oh i was washing underwear this tour uh, yeah. the last couple weeks ago it just didn't line up we weren't close to the laundry and i was like <laughs> and but it's not work guys it's not work yeah, right exactly. <laughs> oh your job's a breeze meanwhile gotta... the, the, everyone thinks that you know we're getting our feet rubbed and having grapes fed to us you know <laughs> But no, we're in the bathroom washing our underwear, trying to get them dry to get ready for the next gig. <laughs> we're out here you can't living get like there too early because if you get there too early, oh, I'm sorry, your rooms aren't ready. You know. Yeah. And, and I got to walk around town trying to find something to eat. Yeah, like, yeah. Here's a voucher right. for a sandwich. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah. God. I know. Where, where, where? I know, right. right? right. Douglas <laughs> real, y'all. Come on. It ain't what it looks like on the outside. Yeah. I love I love I love all the, the everything that, that you've put out. Live at Tonic has been like a I burned that a CD out so many times oh, I had to make you. new ones and all of that, you know. And I, one thing I wanted to ask you real quick before I know we're keeping you a while here, but no, no, no. Do you have a pre you know, you've recorded live and you've recorded in studio, obviously. You've done both. And when you like, do you have a preference for one? And also if you're picking a live place to record, um, do you have a criteria? Or do you like um, you know, is it do you have to check out the room, love the room, feel the room and and all that? Because some of the rooms you've chosen to record and I personally kind of love just being in New York. Oh well thank you, man. Um you know, with with acoustic instruments, it's uh, yeah, maybe you have to be a bit more mindful of what the venue is, 
And uh, I've, I've also had the same engineer. I, I, for my own records, I've only used two engineers for like the last 20 years. So That's cool. uh, if, if you have someone who actually knows your sound very well, right. then yeah. you don't have that much to worry about. Um, but, you know, I've, I've, you know, the Village Vanguard is like, you know, if you've got like a small acoustic jazz group, the Vanguard the is perfect. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's uh, it's carpeted in there, but it's not it's not completely dead. There's still some resonance in the room uh, 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 enough to give it to, to know that you're in a live space, you know, right. Uh, right. but the carpet keeps it from keeps the sound from bouncing around uncontrollably, you know, um, it plus just it's such a historic landmark. You know, right, right. Um, but uh, Tonic, oh, man, I missed that place so much, man. I mean, like that place was. Uh, that was so cool. <laughs> that place was more or less like, uh, well, yeah, you remember that place was like a garage, you know, <laughs> um, and like the energy of that. Place. I remember when we did Live Tonic, I specifically remember that it, it was like because we did it in January, we did it right after the new year. And it was freezing outside. I remember one night it was like nine degrees. Um, but in the in the club, it was about ninety degrees. <laughs> and uh I feel like uh I feel like a lot of us caught colds that week because like <laughs> it was hot as hell inside the club and then you go outside and like Sweating. immediately yeah. you're freezing. So um but uh I mean I don't really have a particular place that i like to record uh most important for me is having uh the engineer who knows how to capture your sound that's cool all right i always wonder that with jazz especially you know i'm down in the west village a lot doing stand up and stuff and you go down to cafe wa and the village underground and blue and all those rooms and it's just like it feels weird when there's not music playing you know yeah were you around uh was was the village gate still around not no not me no i've never yeah. been there but uh a lot of the guys that like play at the cellar comedy at the village underground right like red right. and jeremy and all those guys and yes lonnie like i just love hanging with them afterwards and just like shooting the shit about bouncing around and playing in the city and stuff it's just right right it's incredible Man, when i was a kid growing up and and you know listening to all of these great live albums I realized that the village gate was one of the few places that had, you know, like Flip Wilson, Bill Cosby, all these guys did live records at the village gate, as well as, you know, uh, Mingus or, you know, all these, all these cats that would do live records at the village gate. Um, so when I first moved to New York, that used to be one of my go-to places just, just to hang. Yeah. 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 I'm like, wow, Flip Wilson and Miles Davis played here. <laughs> when did that, that place neighbor. close? 90, 94. 94, yeah. the Village Gate closed. Um, but the Village Vanguard also had comedy at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they all, yeah. It was uh, Professor Erwin yeah. Corey. <laughs> <laughs> we had a guy on our podcast, Wavy Gravy, that's like a long time. Oh, yeah. Prankster, Grateful Dead guy, and sure. he was there. What was it called? Artie's? Was that the name of the place, Mike? Oh. Anyway, um, they, he, they, the they used lantern. to have poetry The Lantern. Oh, he used to have poetry yeah. readings, and he convinced them to have music. 
he was like, come on, try it. So they did. And like Bob Dylan was there. Nobody knew who he was. Right. And um, but he said at a certain point, he was like a beat at that point. He was doing just like free form stuff and he opened for like Monk and all this stuff. I was like, what? The so train? Cool, man. So I was cool, like, right? whoa, you know? And it's this dude City. in a clown suit <laughs> that has a foundation for kids that always comes out with the Grateful Dead. And I was like, you used to open for Monk and Train? Man. <laughs> and that's something. Yeah. It's really incredible. Yeah. I, I love Bob Dylan's book where he talks about meeting Monk for the first time. I, I think it was at the Village Gate. Uh, yeah, that it yeah, was. He, he said he was so in awe of Monk. You know, he's like, yeah, Monk just looked like he was always in his own world, you know, which he was, yeah. you know. And uh, he said he walked up to him and said, uh, you know, Mr. Monk, my name is Bob Dylan. I'm a big fan of yours. And Monk said, what do you do? He said, I'm a folk musician. And uh, Monk said, well, shit, we all play folk music. What do you do? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> wow, that's deep. There it I, is. I love it. Yeah, we all play folk music. <laughs> man. That's our well, look, man, I don't want to keep you, but I want to ask you one final question. Just totally selfish. Anything you want, brother. Anything for you. To, <clears throat> I've met some of my heroes where it was such a letdown. But my my biggest heroes, it, it got to a point where I wasn't sure I wanted to meet my heroes anymore. Right. But my biggest heroes were great. And when I met Elvin Jones, mm. it was beyond because I'm a drummer and Elvin right. is my favorite. And the second one was Roy Haynes. Yes. And um, they were just so sweet. And I've since met Wayne and Herbie. And who yeah. was your hero? Not the bad one, the good one that just made you feel so grateful that they were nice. <laughs> Ray Brown. Yes, I thought that was going to be. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, um, Ray Brown, I, I mean, I can't tell you how fortunate I feel that someone who I admired so much not only was such a nice man, but, you know, he wound up being like very much like a second father to me. You know, um, you know, I got I got to play with him and and John Clayton in the Super Bass group, and yeah. Ray, of course, played. Uh, he and Mill Hinton both played a track on my debut album, and uh, so you know, just Ray, Ray Brown was uh, that was the man. I, I miss him a lot. Yeah, yeah. For, for fans of Comes a Time. Go Google Ray Brown, Ray Brown bass player, and see the people that he played with. Yeah, you blow your mind. And and, and I will also have to say one A. So Ray Brown was one. One A was George Duke. Oh. Ah yes, yeah. I actually had that on my list to ask you about. There's so many things that we didn't get to. Oh no, this is all we'll good, have to man. Do part two for sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll do part two because George Duke and Little John yeah, played with George Duke. That's right. Yeah, Kofi, my brother, you know, he was a Herbie guy. He liked all the guys. Herbie, Chick, Sal. Oh, I know, man. All the, but George, man, he was yeah. so big on George. Like, a lot of people weren't as hip to George. So I'm really glad to hear that. Oh, man. And, you know, um, I think one of the reasons why we became so close is because George was actually surprised that, like, this New York young straight ahead jazz guy admired him so much 
He was like, man, mm. I thought the Jazz Cats wrote me off. I was like, no, nah, man. Yeah. No, <laughs> man. I don't know about those cats, but I love you. <laughs> <laughs> the R will prevail. Woo, Woo. come on now. <laughs> yeah, man, I, you know, yeah. All right, man. Bless you, Christian. Oh, I just... love you, man. I love you too, man. You are the cat. <laughs> you man thank you so much for blessing us with your time i can't wait to see you in person and hear you and 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 learn from you man you know like i always do <laughs> mike let's uh, let's kick it i, I might be in the to. city tomorrow i don't know all right uh, I, I might have to get a permission slip from my wife <laughs> all I, right i can't i can't just go hang out like i like i used to <laughs> I was like, Me neither. Hey, honey, can Me I go neither. hang with the fellas tonight? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have a code word. Oh, I need right. to go. I need to go. <laughs> right. Anytime, man. Thank you so much for joining us. This oh, is a real honor. honor. Thank you. Got to do it again soon. Thanks, we'll everyone. Do it again. Osiris. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.